0: Well, this is the last sermon in our uh, lengthy sermon series through the book of Genesis, through the second half of the book of Genesis, entitled God's Unbreakable Promise. The Bible is, in one sense, the history book of the world. It's world history written from an eternal divine perspective, though. You see, the Bible is unique amongst history, amongst history books, though, because it gives us all of history. It doesn't only give us past history. It gives us what will be future history. It tells us where the world has come from, and it tells us where the world is going. And God decides to begin his book of history with a family. It's the family we've been reading about in the book of Genesis for the past few months. In this family lies the hope of the world. The Bible is God's big plan to restore the world to the Garden of Eden through this family. I think I'm getting some ringing here. Just I'm not sure if anybody can do anything about that, but I am. God will save all the nations of the world through this family. God will institute his good and just kingdom through this family. God will bring about the Messiah through this family. All of God's plans for the world are being funneled through this one, mostly messed up, family. The failures and the corruption and discord in this family have almost become exhausting as we've made our way through the book of Genesis. But at the very end of this book, there's a hint of unity. It takes about 38 chapters, but we finally get there. And we know troubles ahead, right? In Egypt. There arose in Egypt a Pharaoh who did not know who Joseph was, right? We'll hear about that in Exodus. Slavery, oppression, discord are in their near future. But for now, we see God's people united in their faith, in God's promise, and united in their faith in God's providence. Providence. Seems like a heady theological word. I don't usually, I try not to use heady theological words very often, but this time I am going to use it because it's an important word for understanding this story. And it's an important word for understanding who God is and how you fit into his story. The providence of God is simply God's control over everything. The good, the bad, the ugly, the pleasing and disturbing, the clear and confusing. But remember, it's God's providence. It's his good and just and wise control over all things. Only God can have good and just and wise control over everything. But that's still a tough pill to swallow because if he's in control of everything, right, what do we make of all that looks bad and wrong in the world? Well, God tells us that there are some mysteries that no human will ever be able to understand fully. But this is what the Bible does tell us. God is in control of everything, and God is all good and only good, and therefore does never create evil. In some mysterious way, we have to hold intention both the belief that God controls everything and that he does not create fresh evil. And yet... God will use the evil intentions of Satan and of humans in order to weave together a great plan of redemption. He works with the evil of humanity to bring about justice. And the important lesson for this covenant family, and for us here today, is that they learn to trust in God's providence. They must and we must learn to trust in God's promise and trust in God's plan. And those will form the two points for today's talk. First, trust in God's prom. Well, there you go. I've missed about three already. Trust in God's promise. This is Genesis forty-nine twenty-nine through fifty-fourteen. The first. Of the story we just read. Jacob is on his deathbed, and he has just given his sons, the future 12 tribes of Israel, their blessings. He has transferred the great covenantal promises on to the next generation, his 12 sons. God, remember, do you remember what those promises were? God's going to make you into a great family, and that you're going to become a great nation. You're going to settle into this land of Canaan. This fertile land flowing with milk and honey, fruit and wine. And in Canaan, God promised, you're going to have rest from all your enemy and all God's enemies. And lastly, all the nations, when you're in this land, are going to be blessed through your nation. Jacob's final request before he dies, is that his sons would bury his bones in the land of Canaan at the burial site of his grandparents, Abraham and Sarah, and his parents, Isaac and Rebekah. And we're going to see the result of Abraham's faithfulness in purchasing a plot all that time ago in the land of Canaan. Do you remember, way back in chapter 23, I think I think I preached it, it was the second series second sermon in this series. Abraham managed to get a plot of land in Canaan to his own name. It took great faith. It it took great ingenuity. Abraham knew that God had promised him this land and he worked hard to get some in his own name. It was just a small piece of land, a little burial plot in a cave, but it was his. The burial ground became the gathering place for God's people. This little piece of land anchored his family so that they wouldn't forget that their ultimate home was in Canaan and not in Egypt. Certainly, Abraham, at this point in time, did not know how significant of a step of faith this was going to be. But now Abraham is long gone, but this burial ground houses the bones of his family, and it houses the bones of the future hope for God's promised land, because this family would spend the next 400 or so years outside of the land in Egypt. You also see Jacob's faith in God's promise that his home is not Egypt, but in Canaan. This was not a quick or easy trip for the brothers to take their father back to Canaan. Even more, Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, the one he loved with all his heart, is not buried in Canaan. She's buried somewhere else. So they must pass over Rachel's body and bury him with Leah, who is, bo- who is buried with his father and grandfather. And at the moment, you have to remember this. Jacob's family is prosperous. They're well regarded in Egypt. Canaan, on the other hand, has endured famine, and unless something's changed, Jacob's family is hated within Canaan. But against all these circumstances... Jacob believes that God, that his blessing and salvation will come in this land of Canaan. He believes God's promise that their home is in Canaan and not in Egypt. Now, he knows that for a while they're going to have to spend some time in Egypt to grow and get bigger. But he knows eventually, my bones, they're going to Canaan. And you have to know what Canaan is here. It's the promised land. It's it's this prophetic picture of God's future new heavens and new earth. You remember just like the innocent slaughtered lamb in the Old, in the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's a picture, it's a symbol of Jesus and his death on the cross. In the same way the land of Canaan with its fertile land with its rest from God's enemies was a picture of the place where God's kingdom with all its beauty and justice and peace will finally reign. That's what Canaan is a symbol of. It's what it's pointing forward to. For some of you, this world doesn't seem that grand. So hoping for a future home in God's kingdom is all you have to cling to. But for others, your life in this world is fairly comfortable. My life is fairly comfortable. You aren't bothered too much. You have enough food. Your health is good. And you might feel something like Jacob did in Egypt. Why should I hope for a better home when I'm quite content right here? I'm, I'm wealthy. I've got people's respect. I've got everything I need. My, fi- my family's finally healthy, healthy and happy. Why should I worry about taking my bones to, to Canaan? Putting down our roots there. Because he believes God's promise that this world is not his home. And, And God wants you to believe his promise that this world is not your home. If you believe that promise, you won't live like this world is your home. Don't invest your heart and all your resources in building a mini-kingdom here on earth. It's all going to vanish. It's all going to decay. It's going to disappoint. It's never going to satisfy. Set your affection on the coming kingdom, the true promised land, the true Canaan. And when you do that, when you invest your resources, your heart, into that kingdom... You're going to let that affect your budget. You're going to let that affect your time. You're going to let that affect how you invest in relationships. You're going to let that affect what kingdom you invest into. Well, Jacob died, and Joseph, the text says, wept bitterly, and he directed the Egyptian physicians to embalm him. The Egyptians, they they only embalmed those people who were especially honored and respected in Egypt. The process took 40 days, it says in chapter 50, verse 3. And the text notes that the Egyptians, all of the Egyptians, mourned for another 30 days. A total of 70 days of mourning for Jacob. After this period of mourning, Joseph and his brothers make the long journey... To Canaan, with an incredible entourage, it tells us, of Egyptian officials and royal dignitaries. Pharaoh even sends a load of chariots and horsemen to accompany them. This is a funeral procession on the scale of an ancient king. I think the narrator here is showing us, finally showing us glimpses of his blessing and redemption on his people, and specifically on Jacob. Jacob. Jacob, remember remember where he begins? He's fleeing for his life as a refugee. He's got no money, he's got no home. All he had was a blessing from his father. And at the end of his life, he is exalted like a king. Not only from his own family, but from the most powerful nation on the earth. All of Egypt was mourning his death. You also see the obedience of the brothers in carrying out their father's command. Finally, it looks like this family is somewhat united. They obey their father. They appear to trust, although God will have them grow in Egypt, that their ultimate home is in Canaan. And you get the sense that this family will be united in faith going forward. The covenant family is united in their trust in God's promise, but their final lesson in this book of Genesis is to learn to trust God's plan. Number two, trust in God's plan. And we see this specifically in Genesis 50, verses 15 through 21, and this will be the the focus of our time from here on out. In this final scene of the book of Genesis, Joseph and his brothers have now returned back to Egypt from burying their father. And the brothers begin worrying whether the death of their father will affect their own fate. After all, Jacob's dead. That means that Joseph is now the head of the home. He is the patriarch. He is over the whole family. And they begin thinking, Okay, guys. What if Joseph still holds a grudge against us? And the only reason he didn't exact vengeance on us was to just appease our father. Maybe, guys, maybe now that he's gone, Joseph is going to repay us for all that we did to him all those years ago. So what the brothers do, they concoct a story. Haven't learned much, have they? And they send a message to Joseph saying that their father, Jacob, instructed them to ask Joseph for forgiveness. I don't think the text actually indicates that Joseph had done this at all. Well, Joseph receives this message asking for mercy and forgiveness from his brothers. And Joseph weeps. He weeps because these brothers fail to appreciate grace. And forgiveness. There is no doubt from earlier in the story that Joseph had genuinely forgiven them. He had even seen that God's hand was in the terrible thing they had done to him. When the brothers learned who Joseph was in Genesis 45, they were obviously afraid of him. And and this is what he said in in verse 5 to them when they were afraid Don't be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Joseph had every opportunity to exact vengeance on his brothers, but he didn't. And the brothers just cannot bring themselves to believe that someone can truly forgive them because he trusts in God's plan. There must be an ulterior motive. Certainly, Joseph's kindness can only be explained because of our father's presence. Oh, brothers and sisters, it is it is understandable that that these brothers failed to trust and appreciate the forgiveness of Joseph. After all, Joseph was just another human. He was a sinner also. He could go back on his word. But let me tell you, when God pours out His grace and forgiveness, you can take it to the bank. Because God does not go back on His word. If you through faith have received forgiveness of your sins in Christ, you can never be unforgiven. If you're relying on Jesus' death as your punishment for sin, there is not one drop of punishment left for you christian even with all your failures and all your struggles with that are very present with you because you are in christ god looks at you continually with delight he's happy in you you bring him joy he considers your faith in christ To be the righteousness of Christ. And now, he sees you only through the lens of the righteousness of his son. And that brings him joy. Appreciate grace and forgiveness. There's also something positive we can see from the brothers here, though. The brothers do offer genuine repentance notice the words they use to describe their unjust treatment of Joseph in verse 17. I ask you to forgive your brothers for the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Forgive the sins of your servants. In the Hebrew, these are the strongest words you can use for sin. It almost doesn't translate well. The idea is revolt. Rebellion. And ultimately, the, the very words themselves indicate that their treatment of Joseph was rebellion against God. We are so prone to minimize our sin when we talk about it, don't we? We don't like to think of our sin so much as rebellion, but as a mistake, right? You know, even our political leaders do this. They do this all the time. I'll use a couple of American examples because uh, that's what I'm more familiar with. But back in the 90s when Bill Clinton was having sexual affairs with staffers 30 years younger than him in the Oval Office, like the most sacred spot on U.S. soil, when when he, he was confronted with this while he was married, he went on the stand and said, and his confession sounded like this, I realize now I made a mistake. When it was revealed more recently that Donald Trump made horrendous remarks about how he treats women, his response was, it's merely locker room banter. Do you see what they're doing? Do you see what we do? They're trying to convince themselves and everyone else that sin is a triviality. It's a mistake. It's just being a bit daft. It's not violating anyone. Oh no. Sin is a violation of God's glory and his beauty. It's a violation of the creator. It's rebellion. It's inward corruption. It's deadly serious. When we repent of our sin, when we talk about repentance here, We are not acknowledging minor, trivial mistakes. True repentance looks at the ugliness of your sin right in the face. And it says with God, this is heinous. And this deserves death. God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's true repentance. And that's what the brothers do here. But do you know why? Why can Joseph forgive his brothers? The story tells us, verse 19. Joseph said to them, read with me, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You see, Joseph knows that he's just a man. It's not his place to be the distributor of justice. God is the ultimate victim of all sin, even the sin from the brothers on Joseph. He is God is the only one with complete perspective. He sees everything from beginning to end. He knows every circumstance perfectly. He knows every motivation of heart thoroughly. He alone can properly assess and distribute divine justice, and he will. There is no sin that goes unpunished. The Bible teaches that every wrong will be righted, every sin will be punishment. That punishment will either take place has either taken place on Jesus on the cross, or it will be take place in the final judgment where people will take their own punishment. Those who didn't submit their lives to Christ will face their own punishment. You see, Joseph doesn't need to play God because he trusted that God was working together a good plan, even through the terrible actions of his brothers. Read with me verses 20 and 21. This is the climax of the whole book. Looking his brothers in the face, you intended to harm me. But God intended it, the same action for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. I want to take a moment here and talk about a theological issue that nearly all Christians, even critics of Christianity, wrestle with. The whole point of this story is that God controls everything. Well, it's not the whole point, but it's the driving force. God is in control of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Nothing happens that God does not know first that God does not first know, and nothing happens that God does not choose. The Bible also teaches that humans Make genuine choices. And we are responsible for the choices that we make. We aren't robots that are simply pre-wired by God to do this or, or that. No, he makes human beings who can make genuine choices. And we have real desires and we have the ability to make those choices, to act on those desires. The issue people wrestle with then is, is this. How is God in control of everything, and yet we make real choices? If God is in control of everything, and, and we make choices that are sometimes bad and evil, does that then make God responsible for the evil decisions that we make? Is he guilty of evil? Does God force us to make sinful decisions? And then punish us for the evil decisions we made? Seems a bit unfair. The story of Joseph provides a bit of a map for navigating how God and humans relate to the same action. Let me put it this way. The Bible teaches... That in a single action, there is not one actor, but two actors. All those years ago, when Joseph received that beautiful royal coat from his father, his brothers were jealous of him. They hated him and wanted to murder him, but instead they decided to sell him into slavery. Joseph, reflecting on that horrific event, says that there weren't one, there wasn't one actor, but there was two actors acting in the same event. God and humans. You, my brothers, you intended in this action to bring me harm. The brothers were motivated by hatred and jealousy. They wanted to harm Joseph. Oh, but God was also behind the scenes, acting in the same event. God wasn't simply watching from heaven, handcuffed by the decisions of these brothers, pleading with them to stop, having no capacity to stop them. No, God was ordaining the same event. But his intention was to bring about good. Good. The salvation of many lives, Joseph says. I think one of the ways we struggle with this story is because some of us look at this story like this. Wait, wait, wait. This is not the brother's fault. They were just doing what God made them do. They were unfortunate pawns in God's plan. You see, these brothers were morally neutral. They would have done good only if God had left them to themselves. Oh, no. The picture we get from the Bible is that the brothers and everyone else in human history are not just innocent bystanders. No, they are evil. Corrupt humans. And God chooses to incorporate their corrupt decisions and use them for inexpressible good. Wait, Luke. Doesn't the Bible say, in the very next next book of Exodus, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and then he punishes Pharaoh for his hardness of heart? That really seems unfair. I love what in the 16th century Martin Luther and later in the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards grasped in, in their books, the bondage of the will and the freedom of the will. This is how they describe the hardening of Pharaoh. How does God harden Pharaoh's heart? God doesn't harden Pharaoh's heart by taking the innocent good heart of Pharaoh and forcing corruption upon it. No, no, no. Luther and Edwards show that humans do act freely, but we act freely according to our natures. And we are in our very nature corrupt and evil. This is true of God as well. God only acts according to his nature, but God by his nature is thoroughly good. And because he can only act according to his nature, he is good and cannot sin. Oh, we are free according to our nature as well. We make free decisions all the time by our nature. But that means that every decision, apart from God's restraining grace, is tainted with corruption. The only thing that God needs to do in order to harden Pharaoh's heart is remove his restraining grace from Pharaoh and leave him to his own sinful nature. That's why he can tell people, don't harden your own hearts. And they can say, I'm hardening your hearts. It is God's sovereign grace that keeps sinful humans from being as sinful as they would be. Listen, God made us. He gave me as a real human being. I really have freedom. I make choices according to my nature. You make choices according to your nature. We're not robots. But you will not hear me begging God to leave me to make my own decisions on my own. If God doesn't send his grace, his powerful grace, to transform my heart, my desires, my choices... I'm never choosing good. And I'm definitely not choosing God. I'm not begging for freedom. I'm begging for grace. Sinners need grace. They need God's overwhelming involvement in order to choose good and to choose God. One action, Joseph sold into slavery, but two very different actors. The brothers acting out of hatred, God acting out of love to save the whole family. And I dare say, at the end of the story, they didn't even realize how much good God was planning through this shameful event. Just think back. Reflect back on that special coat Joseph received from his father. That coat started a series of mostly terrible events that no one would have expected. I wonder if Joseph was sitting there in an Egyptian prison, cut off from family and everything he knew, probably thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna die in a few days here. And just thought back to that coat. Excuse my language, but he, he probably, that damned coat! I heard R.C. Sproul once trace out what might have gone in Joseph's mind. No coat? No jealousy of his brothers. No jealousy? No being sold into slavery in Egypt. No slavery? No placement in Potiphar's home? No Potiphar? No accusation of sexual assault? No accusation? No prison? But maybe, just maybe, Joseph later in life began tracing God's hand out a bit further. No prison, no interpretation of dreams. No interpretation of dreams, no promotion to the vice region of Egypt, no promotion, no provision of food and salvation for his family, no food, no migration of Israel from Canaan to Egypt, no migration, no, no exodus, no Moses no sacrificial system, no law, no prophets, no Christ. The blessing of all nations in Christ is traced back to God's sovereign control through human evil and corruption. Friends, trust in God's promise and God's plan. If God has promised forgiveness of sin, hope in God even when you struggle with sin, and it's a present struggle and an ongoing struggle. If God has promised a cleansed conscience, and he has, trust God even when Satan accuses you or others accuse you. If God has promised no more evil, no more pain, Trust in God's promise even when life hurts and people try to harm you. Search out for God's promises in the New Testament and trust them. Lay hold of them. But trust in God's plan as well. We we are so limited. We don't understand all of God's ways in mercy and judgment. We don't know all the reasons why God allows sin and evil to continue in this world. We just, we don't have the capacity. God doesn't give us all those answers. But we do know one reason. He's being patient with us. If God wanted to eradicate evil, he'd have to eradicate all of us. Because there's not one human being walking on this earth who is not tainted deeply with evil. So he endures sinful humans. He's patient with our race in order to bring about more and more image bearers of Christ, to bring more people into his kingdom, to transform more sin-sick hearts into Christ-exalting hearts. If you are in Christ, God is only motivated by good to you. Even when the circumstances seem utterly bad, Joseph was cut off from his family in prison, foreign prison. God is working good for you even in those bad circumstances. And sometimes, like Joseph, you can only see the goodness of through the eyes of faith. I'll close with a hymn writer. His name was William Cooper, an Englishman. He was friends of the famous author of Amazing Grace, John Newton. But William Cooper was a very sad individual. He had a very sad, difficult, depressed life. Struggled with the Depression his entire life. It ended up taking his life. But even in his sadness, he wrote beautiful hymns that the church has sang for, for years and years and still are sung today. About he, he wrote hymns about tracing God's good hand even in the storm. Let me read the third and fourth verse of his famous hymn as we close, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. You fearful saints... Fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he holds a smiling face.